good to see so many of us. Uh, is there anything better to do on a Thursday evening than study the Gospel of John? Um, <laughs> We've got to find out which chapter. That's what we have to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll um, we'll dive into uh, into the text of of chapter chapter three. Um, so um, for those of us who were here last week, it was such a blessing to welcome uh, Robert Allen Hill. Um, uh, such a such a good evening. Um, that was recorded and made available in the weekly email. Um, just to let you know, we'll be recording uh, each of our each of our sessions, and the audio audio will be um, in in the email. Um, so there's no pop quiz on last week, um, but he, okay, my one quiz question uh, from Dr. Hill's talk. Finish the sentence. The Gospel of John is different. 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 The Gospel of John is different. Um, so I think we'll be discovering its uniqueness, its difference, its quirkiness as we uh, as we move through. Um, so tonight we're honored to have uh, David Urian uh, bring in the story of Nicodemus to life. Um, how about I open us with a prayer? <clears throat> Loving God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this chilly March weather. Um, God, we thank you for the first signs and uh, tastes of spring that are upon us, the sunshine that we felt today. God, we ask that you be with us this 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 evening, that you join us in our meeting, that you open our minds and enlarge our hearts, um, that we might learn something fresh about um, the Gospel of John. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Um, David, uh, over over to you. Great. Um, well, goodness, thanks for um, uh, um, uh, thanks for coming this evening uh, and engaging in this discussion. You know, and if uh, if you were at this uh, virtually at the service on Sunday, um, this is about the only thing that I have in common with Calvin Trillin. Uh, if you remember, one of his wonderful books was uh, "That's Far Too Much of Calvin Trillin." Thank you. Um, and uh, and so this week is probably this is far too much of David Urian. Thank you. Um, uh, but. Um, you're here, and I'm somehow beating out next Netflix, and so that's just extraordinary. Um, so, um, so I thought we could just spend the evening, um, uh, or at least part of the evening, uh, talking about Nicodemus. Um, uh, and so, one of the many ways um, in which the Gospel of John is different, uh, there are several figures um, that actually appear only in John's version. Um, they're not in the so-called synoptic Gospels, uh, and Nicodemus is one of those figures, um, not mentioned uh, in um, the Gospel we know as Mark, the Gospel we know as Matthew, and the Gospel uh, and uh, associated work we know as Luke Acts. Um, so this is a person who's unique to um, this author's understanding um, and vision uh, of the story that this author was trying to tell. Um, and I'm sure, you know, as you've read and have heard, um, there's been a lot of speculation about was this gospel written for a specific community, the hypothesized Johannine community, and what were they doing? 
Um, and if in fact they weren't a physical community, does it at least represent one of the streams of the early Jesus movement um, that was trying to differentiate itself both from other streams of the G early Jesus movement um, and then also from the world around it? Um, and if that's the case, um, then what does the stories, uh, what do the stories that the author chooses to tell, tell us about what that community was trying to figure out, say, um, and, and represent? And so I think that we can look at the story of Nicodemus, um, um, somebody for whom I'll admit having um, uh, a, a huge admiration and also an identification. Um, and what, does, what do the stories of Nicodemus, since he appears three times um, in the gospel, um, tell us about what's going on? But I think first we need to start with a little background um, and some examination of the places where this fits in. As I said, Nicodemus is only mentioned in the canonical gospels this once. There is an apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus. Um, scholars um, have figured out that it was probably written in the fourth or fifth century of the common era. So therefore not written by this man, um, unlikely even as holy as he was, um, that he would have still been kicking around and writing uh, in uh, four or 500 years later. Um, it bears remarkable similarities um, to another apocryphal gospel that was also written around the same time, the so-called Gospel of Pilate. Um, but um, those are probably have nothing to do with the story that we hear in this instance. What we do hear in this story though, which was um, written, um, quite a time after the events described. We know that the gospels were written um, a long time after and therefore had taken certain historical events um, into account and were reacting to them as well. But we do hear um, several terms that are um, used frequently in these narratives and I think bear some examination. Um, and that includes the Sanhedrin uh, of which Nicodemus appears to be a member and we can talk about that in a moment. Um, and then also the Pharisees of whom he is identified as a member. Um, and they're usually portrayed as both um, uh, pursuers of, tormentors of, opponents of Jesus. And that's probably giving them um, an unduly bad rap, although they had significant differences. But it's worth thinking about, um, uh, about who they were for a moment. Um, so what do we know about the Pharisees? That wasn't rhetorical. <laughs> no, 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 no. Nope, nope. That was that was that was that, that was interactive. <laughs> we get taught this a lot. It's you know we need to be interactive. In these, uh, so so here we go. So no, that was uh, that was. Uh, what do we know um, about uh, about the Pharisees? They're either teachers or lawyers. Right. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> Somewhere about their, along there. How about their socioeconomic status um, uh, in Palestine uh, of that moment. Leaders, high up. Yeah. They were high up leaders politically and religiously, but they did not have the same kind of wealth that the people associated with the temple, the priestly uh, caste, and the Sadducees did. And another important thing uh, about what came about is this sort of Pharisaic, um, not exactly revolt, um, but reaction. They were deeply, deeply skeptical um, of the Roman occupation, um, of the Herodian um, and Herod's um, acquiescence to the occupation, and also to the Hellenization of their culture. Um, so they did not 
particularly uh, interest themselves in accommodating to this new empire of which they were part or uh, to which they were newly part, uh, but instead were quite resistant of that. Uh, and therefore, they're one of those religious movements that we see wants to draw away from the world around it in a reaction to that. And what was their reaction? Because that's an important thing to understand when we read the story of Nicodemus um, and the points that he raises on three occasions. So their David, their reaction to uh, to the the situation is that the, the question? Um, to their religious life, to their political life, to their cultural life. Mm. I'm not sure. They went by the law. That is. Well, they, I wonder if they doubled down on the law like so many people do when they're feeling against the wall. Right. So they certainly had a punctilious um, uh, uh, admiration for and respect for the law. They wanted to keep all of the various um, uh, Levitical laws uh, in all of their glory. They also, however, accepted as part of their doctrine um, a large amount of teachings that other rabbis had done and also the works of the prophets, um, the wisdom literature, um, and also they accepted the notion of the resurrection of the dead. Um, Sadducees, the party of the temple, believed only in the five book, it believed that all authority derived from the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and the authority of the priestly cast in the, cast in the temple itself. So there's this political distinction uh, between the Pharisees um, and, um, and the priestly caste in the temple. And eventually, when the temple is overthrown, um, the priesthood is rendered irrelevant without a temple. Um, the Pharisees will emerge as the dominant force in Judaism and, and give rise to what we've come to know as rabbinic Judaism. Mm -hmm. So they eventually, um, in some sense, become the survivors of this conflict uh, between the various parties and the various understandings of how it is um, uh, one um, is, is a Jew. But they were very skeptical um, of all of the ways that they felt the upper classes and the ruling classes of Palestine had accommodated themselves, both to the Herodian usurpers um, uh, and then to the Romans that, remember, they had first invited in um, as a way of settling their civil war. Um, so that's um, a, a set of who they are. Uh, many of them had uh, a clear admiration for, and to a certain extent, identification with the emergent Jesus movement as well. Um, in addition to the conflicts that existed between these two urban parties, remember there was also a whole movement out in the countryside, the so-called little synagogue movement, um, in which there were small congregations led by rabbis um, that were in some sense a reaction to the huge authority um, that existed in the temple itself. And mm. the Pharisees had more um, both um, affection for and respect by that movement from which Jesus very much came, right? He's an itinerant country rabbi who wanders around preaching and teaching um, and, uh, and therefore is in some distinction to what's going on in the urban settings. So that's an important thing to remember um, who they were. Um, by the time the Gospels are being written, the only folks still standing, since remember the temple's been destroyed, the priestly caste has disappeared, the Essenes have been overrun uh, by Roman invaders, and so the two folks left really are the Pharisees and the Jesus movement. 
And so in rewriting the history, Pharisees are set up with both probably more political authority and influence than in point of fact they had gained at the time of, uh, of Jesus's actual life uh, on earth mm. and had also emerged as one of the real um, rivals to perhaps the only rival to um, the Jesus movement. Um, and so in a, in a sort of piece of, of uh, anachronism, they're made villains often in these stories in a way that may or may not have been entirely accurate um, uh, given the amount of power they likely wielded back then. So I think mm. that's another important thing to remember about them. Let's talk for a second about the Sanhedrin because it will figure in our story as well. Um, and it comes from um, uh, uh, an Aramaic um, uh, Hebrew uh, word that means um, the group assembled. Um, and so the Sanhedrin uh, was a system of, of courts um, that legislated um, uh, in Jewish Palestine, both religious life um, as well as legal life. Um, and a Sanhedrin sat in both because there wasn't much distinction uh, between the determination of religious disputes and the determination of legal and civil disputes. Every provincial city had what was known as the, a small Sanhedrin that had 23 members associated with it. The large Sanhedrin or the great Sanhedrin sat actually in the hall of hewn stone on the Temple Mount um, in Jerusalem um, and it had 71 members. Mm. For a very long time, um, the high priest presided over um, the, San, the great Sanhedrin. There came a point where there was a significant conflict um, and that office was then held by another person, the Nasi, um, uh, N-A-S-I is how it's usually transliterated. Uh, and then there was an associate chief justice, you can look on this. Over the period of the occupation um, that leads up to where these events happened, the Sanhedrin lost some of its privileges. And so we hear that later. It lost the ability, for example, to make a capital um, uh, decision, that is to, um, uh, to um, order the death penalty that had been taken away from it um, uh, through a variety of maneuvers. But in most other matters, um, its word held sway, certainly over religious disputes. Um, and also over any of a number of legal um, uh, matters uh, and issues. And so the system worked um, somewhat like, um, you can think of district courts, appellate courts, and then eventually the Supreme Court. Local smaller Sanhedrins, those with 23 members, um, would decide um, issues and it could stop there. If somebody decided they didn't like that a particular um, uh, hearing um, or, or reasoning. It could be brought up to the, uh, the larger, the great Sanhedrin. Um, they also took on certain matters of doctrine um, and dogma, um, setting calendars, setting holidays, um, uh, and those sorts of things. Um, they, are all, they are both odd numbers uh, because one thing that was viewed as impossible um, was a split decision. So with an odd number of people, it was guaranteed um, that one view or another would prevail. And the great Sanhedrin um, in these days sat in meeting every day except the eaves of the great festivals and the great festivals themselves. Um, so it was a, a significant occupation. It was actually between its two ways of sitting had a larger number than 71 people. There were some people who only sat when the Sanhedrin heard religious issues 
there were some people who only sat when it heard legal issues. And there were many people in the middle of this Venn diagram that sat at both. And that will become important as we unpack who it is Nicodemus is because there are tech clues in the text that tell us um, what the nature of his um, work uh, on the Sanhedrin was. Um, so um, unless there are any questions um, or clarifications on that, um, maybe we'll just dive into the text. I can't see both screens. So David, hi, it's, it's Walter here. I had a quick oh. question. I was just curious what the relationship might be with the Romans as occupiers. I mean, um, you know, obviously maybe there's a balancing act there from a political, you know, what their beliefs were versus if they crossed over certain lines and they might be persecuted and how, how do they keep the power they have versus losing it? Yeah, well, I think we see in this story and and others um, that are, that are told by historians there, it was you're exactly right. it's a it's a really delicate balance. Um, I mean, the Romans actually were effective um, as as rulers of an empire by mostly letting people oppress themselves, um, uh, and by being afraid of Roman um, uh, of, of authority and rule. But it's always much more effective to do that, right? The British Empire did this. Um, the Roman Empire did this. Many successful empires have done that. Um, and so they were given wide berth as long as they didn't step out of their lane. Um, and so it was clear um, what was or wasn't um, acceptable. Taxes had to be paid to Rome. Produce had to be raised to feed the Roman heartland. Um, and so among other things, scribes and um, uh, compliant hearings from the Sanhedrin allowed things just before the time of Jesus to occur that would have otherwise been prohibited. Remember that because land was given to the people of Israel, Eretz Israel, the land of, of Israel, was given by God, um, actually certain things like mortgages um, were not permitted, um, but compliant scribes found loopholes in the law that allowed you to take out a loan in order to pay your ever-increasing temple taxes um, and to use the land as collateral for those. Um, and as a result, huge land holdings um, uh, came uh, about. Uh, and as a result, there was a huge number of landless people, which we hear about in Jesus's story all the time. All these laborers um, had ancestors who were sort of yeoman farmers um, and had been kicked off of their land in order to have these large estates, which raised either um, crops for the Roman heartland or luxury goods. That's why we hear forever and a day about vineyards and why the story of a vineyard in the gospel always has such keen valence because everybody hearing that story knew that a vineyard was built on the land that had been appropriated by wealthy compliant collaborators. Um, and so that's an example of a hearing from the Sanhedrin that would have permitted um, that sort of thing. However, um, in terms of the running of, of, of Jewish law and uh, Jewish life, um, the Romans had less than no interest um, and was perfectly willing to allow the Sanhedrin huge amounts of room to rule in authority over religious questions. You know, can, um, uh, can a man marry his brother's widow? Um, and, and other fun questions um, that, uh, that came up um, uh, for them. Um, so I think that that's, 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 the, that's the fine line um, that, uh, that they walked. Um, obviously Rome could disband anything that it wanted to 
pilot had actually gotten a particularly bad name for himself um, as a governor um, because of his constant confrontation um, with religious authorities that was viewed actually by his superiors, um, uh, for example, the procurator in Syria to whom he reported um, as needlessly confronting um, Jewish religious sensibilities. Um, uh, so for example, um, he insisted on putting a, a variety of Roman imperial um, uh, symbols uh, on the face of the temple, um, something his predecessors and successors didn't do because in fact, it was a, a pointless show of authority. Um, he was a fairly gnarly guy by all accounts, um, and so liked doing that. But most um, uh, left Jewish religious life alone as long as it didn't lead to rebellion uh, and as long as people paid their taxes um, and sent their produce in the, in the right direction. Um, for all of that, um, uh, it was still a rebellious province. Um, and why, as a, um, as, as, a, as a soldier who enlisted in the Roman legions um, and served in Palestine, you could win Roman citizenship twice as fast um, as a centurion in any other legion, save for those which um, uh, guarded Britain. Uh, Britain and Palestine were viewed as the hardship cases um, uh, and, um, and also uh, the likelihood of surviving your um, uh, tour of enlistment was sufficiently low that they didn't have to hand out a lot of citizenships anyway. So, um, so, um, so why don't we go to the text? Can, uh, if this, can you, oh yes, great. So, so this is the first time we encounter um, Nicodemus. Uh, the beginning of chapter three. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because, of their, because their deeds were evil. 
For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly be seen that their deeds have been done in God. Well, so, um, so what just happened? I'll throw a tiny little drop into there. Um, he does, he being Jesus, does call Nicodemus a teacher of the Jews or teacher. So he talks about his role there, mm -hmm. something I'd never noticed in the 500 other times I've heard that. Mm. So, so that particular term of art identifies him specifically um, as a member of the religious Sanhedrin. Um, you know, that, that particular honorific term was reserved for somebody who had achieved that level um, of, of scriptural and spiritual um, and scholarly authority. Mm -hmm. um, so that already tells us who we're in the presence of. Uh, and yet this person, and therefore, uh, because of that, we know he's a man um, of a certain age. Um, and yet he's coming at night and under the cover of darkness to be instructed and engage in um, what actually um, is still recognizable as a rabbinical debate. Uh, if you've ever had the wonderful opportunity to hear two rabbis debate, you know, how can a man fall down a chimney and not actually get covered in soot? Um, uh, <laughs> discuss. Um, uh, and that's what they do. They have at one another and ask seemingly nonsensical questions to begin, right? I mean, Nicodemus doesn't believe for a moment um, that Jesus is actually saying you're going to crawl back inside the womb um, and be born again. But he mm -hmm. does it to engage Jesus in a certain kind of discussion. And therefore, intrinsically, as a teacher of Israel, not only does coming to Jesus show his respect for the authority, but he's very interested in what this rabbi has to say and views him as clearly um, uh, at the very least, his co-equal, um, and, um, and is trying to understand what their interpretation um, of these same writings and laws are. Um, so I think that we, we see, first of all, um, slid into the text um, uh, one revelation of part of the identity um, of Nicodemus, um, and then a long discussion um, uh, which is used very much by the author as a set piece for trotting out what we'd think of as kind of classic Johannine Christology. This is, this is who this gospel says Jesus is as a way of answering um, uh, Nicodemus's um, seemingly um, uh, unusual question, can we actually climb back um, into the womb? Mm -hmm. don't you think, David, don't you think he's... Um he's kind of dancing around the fact that he's not saying I'm the one who's the son of God or the son of man. Right. He's saying the only way up there is by following the son of man or the son of right. God, whatever. Right. I can't remember exactly the exact term, um, but yeah. he's not saying I, it's me. Right. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's being scrupulous in that since um, he will be accused um, by some of Nicodemus's peers of blasphemy um, for having claimed that um, and um, is in this, in this place, uh, you're quite right, I think, dancing around um, what that discussion is, but is saying 
what the nature um, of, of the light, um, what the nature of a holy life, um, what the nature of a sanctified life um, is like. Um, and if the people with whom Nicodemus spends most of his time engaged in debate, i.e. the priestly caste and the Sadducees have this difference, I mean, a, a, a tenet of, of the temple slash Sadducee slash priestly belief was that only could one be sanctified through liturgical worship in the temple, which was controlled by the priesthood, the Pharisees said one is sanctified by prayer um, and by a living in complete alignment with the laws. And Jesus is saying yet again, something else even more radical. One can be made holy, one can have a life in God by wishing to be included in that and by moving toward the light. And this is like, this is the whole, everything you've just read is like, it seems to me the entire basis of salvation theology, right? right. I mean, that's it right there. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, I don't think it's not, it's not laid out like that as clearly anywhere else, is it? Um, I it, certainly um, not in the way it's laid out in, in, in this passage from John. Um, and, and so implicit, I think, in this conversation is somebody who's not there, anybody who believes in the temple um, as the source of holiness. Nicodemus and Jesus have this, uh, this debate of rabbis about how is it that one um, achieves that level uh, of, uh, of engagement. Um, uh, and sanctification and salvation. Um, and Jesus takes a fairly extreme position um, that this can be done um, not necessarily confronting the law or violating the law, uh, but that this is done um, through a movement um, with the metaphor that is used over and over and over again um, uh, in John of light and moving toward the light. Is Jesus's version the only one that would be open to women? It sounds like the temple classes version, since I don't think women were allowed in, is definitely saying women can't be holy. Yeah, we're certainly segregated. Um, and, um, uh, and certainly um, there were parts of the Levitical laws um, that were quite extreme um, in terms of the way that women were controlled. Um, so there is that kind of, of politically and, um, and gender subversive aspect to this teaching um, that's not stated. Um, uh, but um, there's nothing there that wouldn't be open to anyone, um, uh, as opposed to the other two um, uh, parties um, in which significant restrictions are placed based upon any of a number of things. Um, ancestry, birth, gender, ritual, um, ritual obedience to certain laws, um, David, I, I, I'm I just struck by, um, you know, this whole thing that Jesus gives Nicodemus, which is almost, you know, so radical because he's, he's really um, giving Nicodemus a new sense of understanding about turning his life over and surrendering to something that is not yet uh, understood or taught. Mm -hmm. It's a whole new paradigm of thinking to be born again in the spirit. 
Yes. Yeah, and, uh, and, you know, and obviously there are many um, of our um, evangelical brothers and sisters who have latched on to um, that notion of born again as a specific identifiable moment. Um, what, what one of my teachers once referred to as the great undifferentiated whoosh. Um, uh, and that's a way of reading this passage. Um, but not the only way of reading the passage. Um, and I think that there are many people um, who think of this as a more ongoing process um, uh, in terms of, of embracing um, the light. But- um, I guess I'll um, Paul Hoffman's hand up. Oh, and I was, so, no, it's fascinating. I, I hear about the light, but it's also, there's a stridency that I see. It's very aggressive. It's like, if you come along with me, it's going to be okay. But you know, if you don't, you're condemned. So I, that's pretty. To me, that's pretty shocking. Yeah. Um, you know, I read this before, and I thought about that. But this time, when I read it, it was you're condemned already. <laughs> I'm not condemning you, kind of. Which I thought, well, maybe by our deeds, we are, we are shown. You know, in other words, I don't know. And David is, is no, it's a good point. Is David is he picking up on some language of the time about you need to emphasize the negative to get the positive message, or you know, I'm I'm certainly not uh, familiar enough with the terms of rabbinical debate back then um, to know if that was a necessary um, component. Um, but I do um, I, I happen to my reading of this I think aligns with what Carol um, just brought um, forward. I think it's really existential, right? You know you live your life in a certain way and you define who you are by what you do um, uh, as opposed to what it is you profess to do um, or, or seem to do. Um, and so, um, so although the condemning language is, is sort of shocking, right? Because we kind of like our Jesus um, warm and fuzzy, um, you know, lambs and shepherds and, um, you know, the embrace the almighty. You don't find necessarily a whole lot of that in, in John. Um, kind of a tough guy. Um, and, uh, but I think that the point is right, that you, um, you are condemned. He, he doesn't need to do it. He's not the one who's doing it. Um, you, by your own actions and by aligning with the darkness as opposed to the light, have chosen to do that. Um, certainly, you can um, think about this in the context um, of the time, um, which was a pretty difficult one. Remember, this would have been written after the fall of the temple, um, after the Jewish war. Um, things hadn't turned out very well. Um, uh, and so, therefore, thinking back on those people who tried to accommodate themselves to what was ultimately a very destructive force um, in Jewish life had, by their actions, um, condemned the outcome. And um, so. But, but and back to your point about it, it this sort of being a set piece. I mean, it's very interesting that, I mean, he's giving the synopsis of. <laughs> the whole gospel in one paragraph. I mean, it's the whole, the whole, it's all there in one paragraph, right? It's the whole abstract of, 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 of the, of everything, but it's being told of this, you know, authority, intellectual authority. And it's almost something, I mean, by saying, don't you know this already? It's almost like he's reinterpreting what's already there. So, so that gives a certain amount of legitimacy. He's not, and so in that sense, he's not being revolutionary or coming up with something completely new. He's really just reinterpreting what's already there. 
yeah, although I think it, it is a shock. Um, it would be a shock to a, you know, we have no reason to think that um, uh, Nicodemus is anything other than described for a pious <laughs> fantasy um, to hear that, you know, maintaining um, all of the Levitical laws with extraordinary faithfulness um, wasn't actually necessarily all that you needed to do. Um, that would have been, you know, a, a shock to the system. Um, and so, um, while I think we can view this as a continuum um, of belief, I don't think it's um, wholly separate from, um, it nonetheless would probably have been quite shocking um, to somebody um, to hear that, that the way they'd lived decades of their lives uh, didn't necessarily have to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, but let's move on to the next passage because we can, you know, and the interesting thing about this passage, you know, I, 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 um, I, I love the writing here is we have no idea how it is Nicodemus reacted to this, right? Je Jesus does this huge set piece. We don't get to hear what Nicodemus's last word in their rabbi's debate was. It just ends. Um, so then we have to depend upon um, the next um, uh, part of the story. So, and you know, um, why don't we do this um, particular um, uh, uh, segment since it's relatively short um, in, a, in a technique from African Bible study, if uh, folks have known that. Um, so we'll ask for one male voice and one female voice, uh, and then we'll all read it together. <clears throat> so do we have a, do we have a, a male volunteer? Great. <laughs> Sure, this is uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they were doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search, and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. And uh, a woman's voice? I'm Go ahead, John. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? They replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to, to arise from Galilee. And so now let's all read it together. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, asked, Our law does judge people of what they are doing. Does it? They replied, Surely you're not Search, and you will see the no prophet to arise now. Right. Um, so, so, what did we just hear? <laughs> this is the before, before where the first passage 
Yes, well, uh, so before refers to the first passage, um, and he is one of them. This is the Sanhedrin um, sitting about to try Jesus or trying to try Jesus in absentia um, uh, for uh, crimes of blasphemy. And I'm so sorry, can you just say where, like which chapter verse that is? Oh. I think it's seven. I think it's in seven, seven, yeah. five or so. Yeah. Well, it certainly is very dismissive of, of Jesus if he comes from Galilee. Yeah. Oh, how they are so locked into the, the law mm. that they can't uh, open their hearts and receive something else. So another thing I think that this reveals to us is that um, it clearly, um, you know, Nicodemus reveals himself in this passage to be a member of the legal Sanhedrin as well. He's there when the trial is occurring and he does what any good lawyer would do, objects to the entire basis on which the proceeding is being held is <laughs> illegitimate, right? It's a great lawyer's trick um, oh. and not a trick. So he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our law, which you all take in such high regard, says you cannot try somebody in absentia. Um, our law demands that the accused must be present to present themselves. Um, and caught in that, um, they then, instead of having an answer for him from a legal perspective, because there was none, he absolutely had them to rights, they instead come up with a sort of regionalist racist snark uh, remember that Galilee would have been held in the same repute that people from the hill country of West Virginia um, and the Hollers would be held here. They had a distinctive accent um, and they were viewed as, as, as kind of country rubes. Um, in point of fact, they also have a fact wrong, right? Because although Jesus grew up in Galilee and his ministry emerged in Galilee, he's not from there. Remember, he was born someplace else uh, and that someplace else is indeed mentioned in scripture as a place from yes. which something amazing will arise. Um, mm -hmm. So um, they, this is also placed in there, I think quite intentionally um, uh, to show the fact um, uh, that in fact, they got that wrong um, as well. But what do we hear about Nicodemus besides the fact that he's a pretty good lawyer um, <laughs> uh, in this passage in terms of the, la the one we first heard? He seems to have been convinced a bit by Jesus. Like he's willing to stand up for him. And even if his way of standing up is pointing out the specifics of the law, which is probably the best way to stand up for him, he's doing it rather than going along with the other folks who are bending the rules. And so side note, that little bit right there, that last line, that snark, mm -hmm. It could have been in the New York Times today, and I would have believed it from any of our politicians. It's just, it's amazing how that never changes. <laughs> but I sort of like him because he is trying, you know, meaning, I don't mean trying in the bad sense of an irritating. He is struggling. And so many instances in this life, let alone in the Bible, are black and white and not a process that is unfolding and then refolding and doubt. And I kind of like him. <laughs> 
sorry. <laughs> no, but we've you know, and I think I think within a with a with a very for for the author of John a very economical turn of phrase um, since he tends to be kind of wordy um, uh, demonstrates a real shift in the persona that Nicodemus is represented. Right, he first comes in a kind of all rabbi querulousness um, discussing you know, etc. And here, you know, this is. Um, I would agree, it's a very human moment um, and one in which his vulnerability and his willingness to be vulnerable is exposed, right? Mm. Even though there, the first there time- There's 71 people in that night. room, uh, we know, uh, and, and he stands up, not necessarily with a lot of support um, and calls the process um, of the other 70 into question. Other things that struck you about this passage before we move on to the, um, the <clears throat> ultimate one? This, this tells me that Nicodemus really was caught by the first, you know, if you look at the first encounter and this second encounter, obviously he was transformed in his thinking by Jesus. And here he is now defending Jesus. And there must be some reason for that. Jesus must have really gotten to him in some way to make him a believer and want to defend him uh, against all odds at this point. He's really sticking his neck out for this for Jesus at this point. I was I was viewing it as not quite that transformational. I was viewing it as, but at least he is intellectually curious. He wants to hear more. He's hungry for more. He'd like to hear more, but what Jesus has to say, and and that's, and 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 against that are people who don't even want to hear Jesus at all. Defend himself. They just want to try him without without hearing Jesus Jesus's case. And in some ways, he's almost like a stand-in for like the reader there's some language earlier on in john which is like the phrase come and see come and see and here he is literally saying like hey discover what he's about so he it's not, it's as if he's inviting us into the process of hearing who this guy jesus was you know i find there's something very poignant in this man who'd spent so much of his life in the law um <clears throat> defending it as much the integrity of the law um, as the integrity of the teacher. Um, you know, it reminds me of the story about, uh, about John Quincy Adams um, uh, when he was asked by all these ardent abolitionists whose party he had actually not really joined at that point in his career um, to defend um, uh, the uh, uh, crew of the Amistad, right? The, the um, uh, enslaved peoples who had um, hijacked the boat and had sailed it to Boston. Um, and the abolitionists all kept referring to, to them as, as, you know, captured slaves, captured slaves, captured. And Adams cut them off uh, and said, by what evidence do we have that they were slaves? They were captured as free men and they landed in a port where they are free men. Um, you're asking me to defend free men, which I will gladly do. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and so that sort of, of kind of pointed devotion um, to process, I find um, sort of touching 
um, you know, as we all try to figure out what to do in the middle of a disaster, which we all get to live through now as well. Um, you know, Nicodemus was living in disastrous times. Um, mm -hmm. His country was occupied. Um, he was occupied by, by, by people who held him and everything he believed in, in really low repute, but tolerated it. Um, and, you know, what we all try to do to get through those nights, um, you know, I think is, is always interesting. And um, although I do think it suggests he is interested in Jesus's message, he's also interested in the integrity of his life as he spent it to that point. Um, and, um, uh, and finally bridles um, at what was, was one um, cut corner too far for him, I think, you know. Um, well, what if we go to the last encounter um, uh, with him? Um, uh, and sorry, get into my slides. No, what what chapter and verse is that going to be? So um, uh, this is the burial of Jesus. Um, and so this is the last chapter, uh, and it starts with verse 38. <clears throat> so after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus who had at first come to Jesus by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Mm. So, um, so at a later session, um, we'll talk about the insertion there for the fear of the Jews because we have to, we cannot talk about the Gospel of John and not confront anti-Semitism um, uh, then uh, and now. Um, but maybe if we could um, put that in the proverbial parking lot um, and and focus on uh, Nicodemus's um, uh, part of this. Um, so what were the burial customs um, of the time? And why is this such an astonishing one? Bury immediately and not on the Sabbath. Correct. Yep. Um, and also... Um, Very costly oint ointments. Well, often, um, actually, um, bodies were prepared by the women of the family mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. burial, wrapped and usually embalming spices, um, such as myrrh and aloes, were actually not used. Um, and so mm -hmm. that was reserved um, uh, for certain conditions, almost always revered teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and another one of the customs was that although by and large, it was your female relatives that prepared your body quickly, as was said, um, uh, and anointed and wrapped in linen, but not embalmed. Um, mm -hmm. And this particular habit um, was, um, was done, that is where your male followers did this, was a mark of honor that was given to revered teachers and their student, or students, 
were the ones who prepared the body. Mm-hmm. So in this piece, first of all, Nicodemus comes with an enormous amount. I mean, this amount, a hundred pounds um, of embalming materials is the mark of a truly revered teacher of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so Nicodemus, by showing up with this bundle, has said where he places Jesus in the pantheon of Jewish teachers mm-hmm. and by agreeing to do the job himself, acknowledges that this man was his teacher. Oh, it's an okay. astonishing reversal since the man who mm-hmm. accepts this as a teacher is a man in late middle age, had to have been given his role. Mm-hmm. And the man he's burying is in his early thirties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's almost breathtaking um, in what it represents about the social relationship um, between these two men. Um, and um, again, the risks that he was willing to undergo um, after a series of rather ephemeral encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, One of which he was so scared about, he came in the night. Mm-hmm. This is a lot bolder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and can you carry a hundred pounds of stuff or did he have to have a donkey or did he have to have helpers carry it? I mean, it's not, not a stealth thing. Right. <laughs> is yeah. there significance to the comment that no one had been placed in that tomb before or is it? Yes, um, uh, although I think that's part of, a, of, of yeah, that's setting up another part of the story. Um, so I think for Nicodemus, um, uh, it's um, uh, it's not it's it's important. It, John, the author of John, I think sometimes uh, is compact, and so that's setting up another uh, another tale and another story. But I think from the perspective, yeah, um, the important part is the hundred weight the 100 pound weight of, uh, of embalming, the fact that it's embalming and the fact that he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I jump in and just ask a question if you don't mind? Uh, not quite textual, but David, I'm just struck by your uh, powerful response to this passage. Uh, have, you, ha- have you had the chance to honor a revered teacher, a male teacher in this way? I haven't embalmed any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I understand, but you know, yeah, but to honor up. To be honest, um, uh, but um, yes, yeah, um, actually, I have, and so um, for me, this reverberates a lot. I guess I'll you know fly out of the clouds. Um, uh, you know, I certainly come from a tradition in which um, in which one's teachers uh, were highly revered. Um, you know, if um, if you remember um, uh, that particular part of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, I will honor the person who taught me this art um, like a parent um, and will treat um, their offspring like my own siblings. Mm. So it's, you know, it's a part of the, uh, of the culture, the professional culture in which I was raised. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and my very first mentor um, uh, died within, uh, during the time of the pandemic. Um, oh, and God. so I had to send my, um, uh, funeral oration um, uh, remotely. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for saying that out loud. It, 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 it does sound like Nicodemus, there's a very strong, rich thing that he's doing very specifically here. 
He's brave. Hmm. You see, can anybody else see the parallel between our own lives and our relationship with our understanding of Jesus and what Jesus meant with these, the story of Nicodemus? I mean, there, does that speak to anybody of your own journey? Sandy, I would just say what, what I, I love that I've seen through the passages that David led us through is the pro, it seems like a process of, you know, first dealing with a change, a love. It's nice to see a possible arc happening and, and that it could be like, it could be a long-term arc at work as well. I mean, it must be something, you know, as David pointed out first off that the story had a purpose in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John to tell us something. And that's why I asked that question, you know, uh, does it speak to us personally about our trip through Christianity in our lives and how we have come to believe, you know, come, come to and then come to believe? It's moving toward the light. <laughs> And, and I think one point, Sandy, is that, you know, many of the stories of, of conversion um, that are presented to us um, are, are kind of, of binary. You know, they're kind of a light switch. Somebody's walking along, not believing, then they get blown off a horse. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, they like write a third of the Bible. Right. Um, um, <laughs> we don't often get to see the evolution of somebody's right. spiritual life in scripture. And so that's one of the things that I find very compelling about this. He understands Jesus, whoever this Jesus is, in a very different way in all three stories. And we don't often get to see human development mm -hmm. that feels true um, uh, recounted in the Gospels. You know, as I said, usually people, you know, they get blown off horses, um, you know, they, they fall on their knees and say, you know, my Lord, and my God. Um, uh, there's not a whole lot of, you know, nuance um, or, or denouement. And so, so somebody took a lot of trouble to convey that um, about Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. I think it's also symbolic for the community that's trying to figure out how it's the same and how it's separate. Um, that the figure, because who knows if there really was or wasn't, it's a very extraordinary representation of somebody who may or may not have lived. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but, but he is a Pharisee. Uh, and therefore, the fact that a Pharisee, who is otherwise used as very much the um, opponents of Jesus mm -hmm. and the Jesus movement, is viewed in this extraordinary sense and is portrayed quite sympathetically, and yet never fully abandons his life as a Pharisee, right? I mean, two of the three stories, he's clearly in that role. And in the third one, he's acting out of his tradition. Um, in the way that he honors um, uh, uh, the dead Jesus. You probably know that in, in much of, of Christian, Western Christian art, um, uh, lots of the representations of the descent from the cross um, represent Nicodemus uh, as, as holding Jesus's body. There's a famous Michelangelo Pietà, um, lots of other representations. Um, uh, and so he's important in, in at least Western Christianity's representation of another very human moment that happens before the embalming uh, of just taking the body off of the cross. 
which actually the story doesn't support, right? The story says the body was already down and he claimed it, but um, but it um, it made good copy, I guess. It makes good good art um, represented um, uh, in that way, uh, and therefore, um, you know, has a place in Western art, Western religious art, that's really second only to Mary um, uh, in terms of the acknowledgement of Jesus is dead. Ooh. Not too many people get to hold the dead body in our art. Um, the two of them are our are friend from this evening um, and, and Mary. David, what, what does the gospel of Nicodemus, you know, tell us about, about him and, and can it be trusted given, you know, when it was written in the context? Um, so, so, you know, in terms of, of, of trusted, it depends upon, you know, it obviously didn't end up um, in the canon, um, so that all sorts of theologians said um, not trustworthy, not doctrinal, um, uh, all of that. That being said, um, uh, the um, story um, elaborates somebody who um, becomes a full-fledged member of the Jesus movement. Um, so um, in that sense, um, I think it's kind of disappointing um, because I actually happen to like um, some of the um, wonder and mystery that surrounds Nicodemus's journey as opposed to having it spelled out for me. Um, uh, so I guess that I would say, and it also had lots to do, um, a, many of the, the, the things that Nicodemus uh, runs on and on about in the gospel of Nicodemus have lots to do with the doctrinal um, uh, debates of the fourth and fifth century of the common era, um, which or way after Jesus and had nothing to do with anything he appears to have talked about, but were arguments about what it is he'd said. Um, and so this was, um, I think most scholars think it was written by one of the parties in those big debates um, uh, that happened, um, you know, before um, somehow they were all settled by various councils. Um, so, but I, I sort of like the, the mystery um, that this leaves us with. Um, it also allows me to um, encounter it you know, sort of in prayer and meditation uh, from different ways, depending upon, you know, where I am. Whereas if it had been spelled out, that would be too bad. So um, what do you guys think? If a, um, if a fund fundamentalist Christian approached Nicodemus and said, brother, are you born again? How do you think he'd respond? Don't try to pin his life. <laughs> he would answer with a question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, born again? <laughs> Too straight. That's crazy. <laughs> And it would depend on which part of his life, you know, whether it was when his first encounters with um, Jesus or when he was preparing Jesus's body for burial. But I like Sandy's answer with a question <laughs> or was it Paul? Joe, what, uh... 
David, what you said though, but you know, we're, we're seeing three snapshots of Nicodemus and the rest of it is left up to our conjecture as to his transformation from the time he went in the night to the time he showed up timidly and asked the question to the group, you know, this guy needs to be, shouldn't he be here to be tried? I wasn't tentative at all. And then showing up with his bag of stuff at the end to anoint Jesus. What a transformation that was, you know, and, and it was just, I say it's a slow drip, just like my journey has been a slow drip in this thing. Yes, and I think also that, um, Sandy, with this with the slow drip in Garrett's question, I think it would be frustrating for the questioner because it's sort of hard to pin Nicodemus down because the action that he takes is inside of his tradition. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna use your, you know, the Garrett's questioners. I'm not gonna use the questioner's language, but I'm gonna do an incredibly respectful, loving thing inside of my tradition. So it, 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 it might not look like born again, but it's like, yeah, it's pretty deep. He's still within his life, which I think for me is certainly a difficulty to live my life, but to be very aware of and try to be a participant in Jesus's way. And that's part of the problem with, have you been born again? You know, these explicit questions, either or, they're not paying respect to one's spiritual or emotional core ever. Um, so doesn't, doesn't that just mean instead of born again, doesn't it just mean that you understand or you feel the spirit? Okay. It's not being born of the flesh, it's, it's in your heart and that that spark is there. Um, which is what Jesus is talking about all through this, as far as I've read so far through chapter six, um, that we're, we're seeking that eternal or everlasting spark that we're listening to him and the message that he gets from God that is, it's, it's, it's here for us. And what about Nicodemus? Wasn't he around three days later? And didn't he maybe hear about Jesus appearing again? I mean, wasn't there was there some scuttlebutt going on around? We only know that the disciples saw him, but I wonder, you know, just a thought that he would have. It's a lot of mystery. In, a lot of mystery, yeah, in, a lot of mystery. And that we, I think where we get blocked sometimes is we think of it in human terms here on earth, earthly terms. Mm -hmm. And we don't have um, black and white terms for God and the spiritual. It's a lot of mystery. And um, yeah, except for the caring for others, which I think is really what's important. You know, I mean, that that's the translation of, I'm sorry, I think you're muted. Go ahead, Barbara. Barbara, you're muted. Yeah, go ahead. I think that um, Jesus is here to 
help us learn. But he says over and over again, you'll never know what heaven's like unless you've come from heaven and this kind of thing. And, and that's the mystery that we can't always put our arms around. Um, I guess maybe that's where our faith comes in. Um, so to, for Sandy's question, you know, what do you say? Um, I have to think that um, sometimes actually um, needing some time to come up with an answer um, is, is equally valid. Um, you know, when I was, when I dropped out of college for a while, I worked for the American Friends Service Committee um, doing draft counseling. Um, and when I was going off on my first solo trip, the um, uh, uh, Meeting for Sufferings, which was what the committee that was sending me off did, um, had all sorts of practical questions for me. You know, did I have enough warm socks? Um, you know, did I have a bail card, et cetera? Except for this one old birthright friend um, who still used plain speech. And, you know, I was going around the room. And so he looked right at me and said, David, is the washed in the blood of the lamb. Oh. Oh. I still haven't gotten back to him on it yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes wow. questions take a while to percolate. Um, and that's on my long list. Of, I'm still. What did you say on, to him? <laughs> uh, nothing. <laughs> I, I, I respected um, Barclay um, so much. Uh, that I didn't want to give him some sort of flippant answer, which is probably what my, you know, then actually what I would probably still do. But I, I respect him enough that I didn't give him a flippant answer. Um, I just um, tried to look as thoughtful um, as a 20-odd-year-old could look um, uh, at, at that point in time. And I, I figure if I ever come up with an answer, um, I'll... I'll um, somehow offered to him, although he has passed on to his reward. Um, so, so I think that that's like this, you know, are you born again? Um, maybe the best answer to that question um, is, um, is, is thoughtful silence. <laughs> Certainly that seems to be what Nicodemus does at the end of the first passage we read. Um, where Jesus goes on and on and on, um, and we hear nothing more from Nicodemus. Mm. We can imagine, I suppose, he was gobsmacked by that dialogue. Um, mm. uh, but I mean, what strikes me about this story um, and the, the transformation of Nicodemus and the process of his conversion, uh, you know, you have Peter, right, who is is summoned by Jesus, you know, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, right? He's, he's on the waters and his, uh, he encounters Jesus in the call. And it's this immediate profession of faith, like, Lord, who are you? You're holy. You're awesome. Wow. And, and he signs up and he, and, and in some ways the gospels tell the kind of story of Peter's, um, journey, but you, you see Peter starting to wobble and, it's interesting to me that Nicodemus is here for the burial. Peter ain't there. Um, the founder of the church has already, he's been at the fire and he said, I don't know the man. Um, and so for this, for, for John and the early Jesus movement to say, actually this person who's on this journey of doubt and slow questioning for him to be present for the, 
for one of the chief cornerstones of the movement not to be there, we should be cautious on how we think about who's in and who's out, who has faith and who doesn't. Um, anyhow, I, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. It's, it's Nicodemus and then the women in the morning. But David, you know, that first pat part of him preaching, really preaching to Nicodemus about God so loved the world. I mean, those pieces of that <coughs> bit of information that he gives Nicodemus has resonated through the years. And we spend more time singing about those <laughs> phrases in the choir. And actually, I think we're going to be singing an East, our, part of our Easter uh, <coughs> song. Uh, our Easter anthem is going to be yeah, For God So Loved the World. Hmm. Danny, that's a fascinating point. And I wonder, because it's kind of, <coughs> it's, it, it's so, you can make a song about, yeah. And are there any songs about Nicodemus? And it, 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 it'll it have to be like a quiet song or... Like it wouldn't Nicodemus rhyme. Heard. It wouldn't it, like it wouldn't rhyme well. Or something. Nicodemus heard it first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that goes along with Garrett's point, you know, about the idea. So who's there? Not Peter. Um, and if we think, um, uh, as I think several people pointed out, that, uh, Walter, I think pointed out, you know, just the density of that passage um, as the summation of at least the Johannine version uh, of what this whole thing is all about. Nicodemus is the one that gets to hear it. Not, you know, not his seeming favorites, um, uh, but Nicodemus um, is is the beneficiary um, of this densely packed um, uh, discourse. Um, and so I think, as 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 Kerto said, that should give everyone pause. And I think that that's the I, I would argue that that's the purpose to which this was put um, in whoever it was represented the Johannine community. Um, uh, basically, this is a way of sort of saying, not so fast, um, don't be quite so sure um, about who's in the inner circle and in the outer circle. Um, why don't we just look at actions? It fits in beautifully with how Jesus' point about being so excited about someone who is lost, I guess, pulled back versus, yeah, the ones who are already there good for you. You've got your reward. But again and again, he does parables where he's excited about those who have found their way back or who have found their way to him. And so this is another take on that, I think. I just think of Nicodemus coming in the night, this older man, older than Jesus, asking these questions and having these profound answers. Such, a, such an intimate a conversation when you think about putting yourself there. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm wondering um, if this is a, a good place for us to, to end and, and go into the night um, <laughs> with the gospel. Um, Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. This has been such a rich, rich, rich discussion. Um, 
Bye-bye, David. Mercy. I got to start reading commentaries tonight to get ready for next Thursday. <laughs> Mercy. So um, so next week, we'll, um, we'll look at uh, the next story in the gospel, which is just such an interesting kind of contrapuntal uh, story to the Nicodemus. Yeah, it's it's Jesus at the uh, at the well in the strange out of the way place of Samaria. Um, so we'll see what unfolds for us uh, in that in that story next week. Um, thank you, everyone, for your engagement, your participation, um, David, for leading us into this uh, deep dive into this rich and wonderful figure of Nicodemus. Um, all right. Well, without anything else, um, peace and blessings uh, as you go into this night. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, David.